Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, I'll look at the week's news. New data show that China's economy is facing mounting downward pressure in November, adding to concerns that the world's second-largest economy is further slowing. Lackluster infrastructure investment, a cooling property market, and weak consumption suggest policymakers may make more efforts to bolster the economy. Government economists are pessimistic about the outlook of China's economy, and observers expect this to lead to further policy easing. The easing could include traditional measures like infrastructure spending, but also more radical steps like cuts to the value-added tax, yuan depreciation, and deregulation in property sectors. It's been a bad year for most emerging market currencies. China's yuan wasn't the worst performer. That prize goes to Argentina's peso. But it still hit a 10-year low against the U.S. dollar in October. The currency has recovered slightly since, but it is still hovering perilously close to a key psychological barrier of 7 yuan per dollar. And there's little expectation the yuan will strengthen significantly. Most debate is instead on how much weaker it might get. Trade war negotiations, China's slowing growth, and the U.S. Federal Reserve are seen as the key factors which will determine the fate of the currency over the next 12 months. Most analysts agree that the yuan will slip past the 7 per dollar barrier at some point in 2019. This will be a tense moment. Investors worry that a rapidly weakening yuan could create a vicious cycle. If it slips around the 7 per dollar line too quickly, concerned traders will probably sell more yuan, putting even more pressure on the currency. Wealthy individuals and businesses might try to pull their assets out of China before they lose even more value, dragging down the yuan further. Canadian embassy officials in Beijing were reportedly allowed access to two Canadians who were detained last week. Michael Korvig and Michael Spavor were separately arrested on December 10th for allegedly endangering China's national security, according to the Chinese government. Their arrests came just after Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Vancouver at the request of the United States, which says she was involved in financial transactions that violated U.S. sanctions on Iran. 
Former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman has been hired by beleaguered Chinese tech giant ZTE to conduct what the company says will be an independent national security assessment of its products. Shenzhen-based ZTE has been struggling ever since Washington determined that the company had violated an agreement relating to U.S. sanctions against Iran. The finding triggered a two-month suspension of ZTE operations in the United States. This isn't the first time ZTE has hired an ex-lawmaker to help improve its image in Washington. The company has gotten lobbying assistance from former Minnesota Senator Norm Coleman and former Nebraska Representative John Christensen. In your corruption casebook, Zhang Shaochun, former vice minister at the Ministry of Finance, pleaded guilty to accepting $10 million in bribes this week. Zhang was dismissed from public office and expelled from the party in September. Zhang accepted bribes in exchange for favors that included adjusting staffing arrangements and helping with children's school admissions, a Beijing court said. And fugitive Chinese official Zhang Lei was repatriated after 11 years on the run in New Zealand. Zhang, who was formerly at the China Association of Automobile Manufacturers, is suspected of corruption and had an Interpol red notice issued against him in 2007. He is the 55th such red notice official to come back so far. Last week, China observed its annual Remembrance Day for the Nanjing Massacre. But the way some Shanghai basketball fans mark the occasion has landed their team in hot water. Shanghai Sharks fans allegedly yelled, quote, Why didn't your team get murdered during the Nanjing Massacre? Close quote during a match between the Sharks and the Nanjing Monkey King, a team that comes from the city that saw mass killings of civilians by invading Japanese troops in 1937. The Nanjing team responded to the incident on Weibo, saying, quote, more than 300,000 soldiers and civilians in Nanjing were massacred. Our club hopes the relevant departments will thoroughly investigate this matter, close quote. The Shanghai Sharks, for whom Yao Ming once played, posted an apology soon after. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors for a deeper dive into some of the week's stories. First up is Doug Young, managing editor of Caixin Global. Doug, today we are talking about Apple in China. What is going on with America's tech darling? Okay, this is actually a real interesting story where something happening in a Chinese courtroom could actually have global implications for a, a company like Apple, which is obviously everybody knows. This story involves a couple companies, Apple being one, and the other one is a very well-known company in the semiconductor world, but maybe less known to consumers. It's called Qualcomm. If most of you take a look at your cell phones, your smartphones these days, a lot of them are powered by Qualcomm chips. As Intel is to PCs, Qualcomm is to smartphones. A lot of smartphones out there are powered by Qualcomm chips. Qualcomm also makes software and holds all sorts of other intellectual property. And it seems that Qualcomm has sued Apple for violating some of its intellectual property. And this was a a case that's going on in the U.S. And it's apparently been dragging on for a while, which is the way U.S. lawsuits tend to happen. So what's new here is Qualcomm decided Apple's really dependent on China. I think China's, you know, certainly one of its top five markets. It might be it's, depending on how you slice and dice it, uh, China's probably its number two or three market. Let's go after Apple in one of their big markets, because the idea being, if I can win a lawsuit against them in that market, Apple can't sell their cell phones or their iPhones in that market. And that's going to be like a big loss to them. So Qualcomm went ahead and did that. And guess what? They they won their lawsuit. 
This is uh, in South China, in Fujian province, which I'm not sure why they bought the lawsuit there. But bottom line is they won the lawsuit. And the lawsuit means that Apple has essentially been found guilty of, of infringing Qualcomm's IP and therefore has to stop selling iPhones in China. Of course, there's a little more to this. This decision only affects older iPhones. It doesn't affect the newer iPhones, the, the newest iPhones that just came out this year. But apparently, uh, now media reporting, and actually a lawyer, is confirming Qualcomm is actually going to sue to stop Apple's latest ones, which I think are the XS and the XR. They're in the process of, of suing to stop those. So, you know, if they win that lawsuit, that's going to really hurt Apple because that's obviously where the big majority of their sales are coming from, are from the new, newest products. Uh, so Apple has actually gone on the record saying this could really force us to settle the lawsuit. And of course, Apple's putting their spin on it saying this will be bad for consumers because it's going to raise the price of iPhones because money that we weren't paying to Qualcomm before suddenly we're having to pay to Qualcomm because a judge decided in China that we were stealing their intellectual property. This seems kind of novel to me that a ruling by a Chinese court could have such an outsized effect. What is the takeaway here? Yeah, I think it, it shows the, you know, just the power of the, the Chinese market, not so much the power of the Chinese courts. I, I don't think people really take the Chinese courts all that seriously, but the courts in China have the power to enforce decisions in China. And because China has become such a huge market, having a court rule against you in a case like this in China, especially for a company like Apple that's so dependent on China for such a big chunk of sales, it's, it's going to make a company, you know, think twice. I think when a court rules that you've infringed on someone's IP in the U.S., companies take that very seriously because it basically means they can't get access to the U.S. And, and a lot of companies are heavily dependent on the U.S., because uh, it's such a big market. But China didn't traditionally have that sort of clout. Um, so, you know, the Chinese courts, I think a lot of people think they are getting better at doing IP cases, but I don't think anybody thinks they're really that world class yet. But, you know, this just goes to show that the decisions that they make actually will be having a bigger and bigger impact on a lot of this sort of litigation that goes on all the time between tech companies when it comes to their IP and IP protection. Well, great, Doug, and we will talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Kaiser. Next up is Charlotte Yang, reporter at Caixin Global, to talk about what's happening with Made in China 2025. Uh, Charlotte, just in case people aren't clear on this, maybe you could first tell us what Made in China 2025 is and why it's so controversial. Um, Made in China 2025 is this ambitious China's strategy to make the country a high-technology manufacturing powerhouse by the year 2025. This has attracted loads of criticism from policymakers in D.C. because they think that China is using tactics, for example, like subsidies as well as protectionist approach and forced technology transfer to bolster China's development at the expense of the U.S. Okay, so why is it back in the news again right now? So very interesting that on Monday, the state council published this list of policy priorities that it wants the local governments to focus on. The first time they introduced this list was actually in the year 2016. So we compared the two lists and found that Made in China 2025 was actually taken off from the list. Well, it, it seems to me at least that this is you know a response to pressure from the Trump administration. Is there a clear connection between the trade war and the removal of Made in China 2025 from this list? 
Um, so I think there is a connection between the two. Um, this is my speculation, but I think because this Made in China 2025 has just made itself a target for um, policymakers to criticize China. So I think what the government is doing is that we can just take off this list, but I doubt they're actually going to change it with the strategy direction it's heading to because with China's rising labor costs, it has to climb up the technology value at a spectrum. Well, Charlotte, great to talk to you, and uh, I hope we can have you back again soon. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Seneca network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at SubChina.com. Take care.